It's nice to know you're going to have Heckler at the front row. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, see if I can get this thing turned on. Everybody hear me? Ah, good. Good. Appreciate it. Uh, so it's really great hearing this this word about Manzano. I'm going to come back to that in a minute because it just fit right along with what I wanted to talk about today. But uh, kind of keeping in the same kind of message that the pastor's been talking about with parables, uh, we're going to start uh, in, in, in Luke. So if you want to pull your Bibles out, we're going to go to Luke chapter 16 and start with the first verse of it. Um, it's interesting as I was reading this, though, you know, it's, this is one of those... I don't know if you guys that read the Bible a lot, you realize that every time you read it, it says something different to you, which I think is such a phenomenal thing from the Bible. Um, but as I was reading this scripture, I've heard this scripture used a lot of time to tell people about stewardship, make sure you know, do all those kind of things. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about money today, so everybody's okay. But um, as I was looking through the scripture today, I found that, you know, really this is kind of one of those most troubling scriptures I find in the Bible. Um, because I have to ask myself some questions as I go through it. One of it is, uh, was Jesus actually praising a dishonest manager during this process? Now, understand, I've been in management for 40 years. I man like I say, I manage processes and time and resources and projects, and I lead people. I've been doing that for a long time. So when the pastor asked me if I wanted to speak, I said, oh, sure, I can talk about a manager, right? So... But anyway, um, but here is, you know, Jesus, praise, is he really praising a dishonest manager? And, you know, why, why would Jesus tell us to emulate or to, to do the same thing as this dishonest manager is doing? And, and, you know, he clearly stole a lot of property, that kind of thing. And, you know, in some ways, uh, you almost kind of wish this verse wasn't in the Bible because some people may read it who are, you know, non-believers and they take it out of context and they think, yeah, that's what that's what Jesus is doing is praising this guy for being dishonest. But as we come through it, you'll you'll find more from it. That said, though, it really says something powerful to me, and I'm hoping that you'll understand the real message behind it. So again, let's go to Luke 16. We're going to start with verse number one, and it says, "He also said to the disciples." Understand, he's talking to the disciples now. One thing I want to point out here is this is really not your typical parable. In fact, it's more of a story. Most parables are taught to just the crowd that Jesus is talking to. And you notice how most of the time the crowd really doesn't understand it. But it, it represents a relationship with God and with, with people. But in this case, he's telling a story, I think, to really bring out a point. And anyway, it said that there was a rich man who had a steward. And charges were brought that the man was wasting his possessions. And he called him in and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be the manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I, and he thinks a minute, and he says, What? I, I've decided what to do, so the people may receive me into their house when I am put out of management. So summoning the master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do, do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, write down 80. 
And then the master com commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than with the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it, fall, it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a little is also faithful in much, and he who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. So you cannot serve God and money. So uh, do you ever find yourself rooting for what I would call the anti-hero? Uh, I tell you about these movies I'm, I'm going to talk about. It kind of ages me. So some, you know, it's funny. I think I mentioned one in the pastor the other day. He never heard of it. Anyway, but how many of you guys saw Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Okay. Do you find yourself at, that, at the end of that movie cheering for you know, Robert Redford? And you had uh, Paul Newman, right? They were in this little thatched hut down in Guatemala and surrounded by the enemy or whatever. And you're cheering for them, hoping they'll make it, right? You gotta think about it. those two guys were robbers. These guys robbed banks, they robbed trains, they killed people, but boy, we're cheering for them, right? And not too long after that, they came out with another movie that was called The Sting. Remember The Sting? Yeah. In this case, they were so creative, they came out with this really great plan. In fact, you had to watch it really close to be able to keep up with what they were doing. This awesome plan that they were using because they were gonna take money away from this really bad rich guy, right? And so we're cheering for them. At the end of it, boy, they get all that money, and they win, and we're like, yay. Is that really the kind of people we ought to be cheering for? Usually people that are really just, you know, taking a man for really whatever it's worth. So, you know, you have to ask yourselves, you know, we've, we often expect something like that kind of stuff from Hollywood, but we really don't expect to see something like that in the Bible. Let's go to our story. This begins with a classic storytelling kind of words, right? It starts, there was a certain rich man who had a manager. And I got to tell you, back in Luke's time, I, I wouldn't want, if I were a rich man, I wouldn't want Luke to know me. <laughs> I'm sorry. You ever notice Luke talks about more rich people in his, in his book than any of the rest of the Gospels. And sometimes uh, it's kind of hard to understand uh, where he's coming from. But in this case... I'm not so sure that uh, he's talking about loving this guy. Luke loves a good story about a rich person. Anyway, Luke writes more than, more, you know, like I said, more significantly than anybody else about that subject. And the focus here, though, uh, is not really mu as much on the rich man himself, but it's on one of his managers. So there's a lot of gossip going around. Uh, anybody here ever had to let a manager go before? Yeah, anyway, you hear all these rumors about how this manage, managers are working and everything. There's a lot of gossip going on. Uh, we really didn't know what the gospel about or who, who was saying it, that kind of thing. Uh, one of the words that we used in this, this passage was he was squandering. It's basically the same word that was used. I know the pastor talked last week about the parable of the prodigal son. Remember, the prodigal son was squandering his dad's wealth, and this was kind of the same word. It may be that the manager was being accused of simply being inept 
unable to make any you know, efficient profit. Perhaps the manager was, was abusing his expense account. We don't know. Uh, maybe he was throwing lavish parties for himself. You know, maybe he was doing other stuff. It says maybe he was you know, building his own house. I actually had a manager one time that was taking money and putting furniture in his house. You know, you see things like that happen. We don't really know what it was, right? But obviously, whatever he was doing wasn't good. So, the, but right in the middle of this, the scene kind of changes a little bit. It se seems that the manager has really kind of starts accusing him. And first, he asks him, you know, to, to tell me about, you know, give me an account for who you are, what's happened. Um, and then, then he jumps from, you know, what is this I hear about you? Give me an account. And then all of a sudden goes to, you're fired. You've had enough, right? You really didn't give him much chance to talk. You know, nowadays when you, you know, if you bring somebody in that you want to let go, you always give an opportunity at least to tell their side of the story. But I have to admit, nine times out of ten, if there's somebody I have to let go, I already know the story before I walked in there. But we really have to give them that opportunity. In this case, it doesn't sound like he really did. It seems to me like the evidence that this person had was pretty clear. The manager quickly goes to give me an account of your management, and then without even saying another word, he says, because you can no longer be my manager. He had already made up his mind what was going to happen before he walked in there. Bottom line, this guy was a dishonest person. What I thought was interesting, though, is it kind of came to a, kind of a, a weird difference in how we would handle it today. It seems that the manager has been given like two weeks' notice, right? You know, today, if you let somebody go, you bring them in your office on a Friday, you have that discussion, and they're gone. Especially if it's something that has to do with dishonesty, because you don't want them back in your business. But in this case, uh, at least he was allowed some time. Um, why? Uh, we don't even really know why he gave that much time, but, uh, but it did happen. So this manager, he's a little scared. What does he do? He stops and he thinks a little bit. Hmm. I'm not going to be able to get another job as a manager. This is probably a small community, right? Word gets out fast. He's probably not going to get hired. Won't be another manager, so he's got to find something else to do. Uh, says, uh, no longer, uh, I, I can't be a, I can't take a job as a, as a ditch digger. Why? I think it's either he was too lazy or he couldn't do it. Probably, probably a little combination of both. If he's been a manager sitting on his, you know what, for so long, he's probably not very good at digging ditches. But he's a little bit lazy. And then it says also can't be a beggar. So kind of wonder if that kind of points to he might have had a little bit of pride problem as well. But unlike even today, you know, the guy doesn't have a 401k to fall back on, right? He, 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 he can't go to unemployment, draw unemployment. So basically, he's in trouble. It doesn't mention him about having any friends or anything, any family or anybody like that to help him. He's on his own. So he starts kind of scratching his head, you know, and I kind of think of Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. Everybody remember those kind of, he kind of scratches his head and all of a sudden this light bulb comes on, right? He says, so, I know what I'm going to do. He has a brilliant idea. He says to himself, self, <laughs> I know what I'll do so that when I am removed from management, they may receive me in their houses. One by one, he starts calling these people in. He calls in the people that owe money to his master. And one of them owed 100 jugs of olive oil. He told him, hey, just cut that in 50. Don't worry about it. Gave him a 50% reduction. I kind of like the way these guys manage debt. That'd be great, wouldn't it? And then, uh, then he brings another one in and says, uh, "You owe, uh, he owes 100 wheat containers of wheat. 
He got a 20% reduction right there. He told him, hey, just mark down 80. Just pay that, right? <laughs> so, but, but he got to wonder why he was able to get away with this. I thought it was interesting because uh, I think he's kind of overcharging for stuff he should have had, had anyway. And, and there's a little bit of a, th a thought. Um, I, I, I bet the master kind of knew about it a little bit too, otherwise he wouldn't have been quite so happy with this. I think if somebody was doing this in my business, uh, you know, I would probably call the cops in on him, had him arrested and that kind of stuff. But, but he didn't do that. Um, he, he actually commended him on the fact that he had such shrewd action. If you think about it, though, at the time that we're talking about in Israel, I mean, they were living according to Jewish law. If you look back in Exodus, uh, I think it's Exodus 22, 25, it talks about that if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, it says, do not, take, do not be like the money lender and charge them interest. So somebody's charging these guys interest, which is kind of against the law. So... Part of that is because I, you know, a lot of the senior leaders and even religious leaders of the time kind of stretched the law a little bit, and they figured, well, that really doesn't apply unless a person's really poor, right? So, so I kind of think that's, that's probably what's going on. So the fact was that by relieving some of this stress off of some of these debtors, it probably made the owner look pretty good too, right? So he was pretty, pretty happy with it. But... In fact, the manager rectifying these accounts might have brought a lot of praise to this manager. Anyway, the story is not a positive story. In fact, it's a negative one. It focuses on the shrewdness of this manager, and compared to the most, most followers of Christ, it's interesting that his shrewdity was much higher, much more, than those people they called the followers of light, which are Christians. Right? I think that's the focus of this whole message. You know, local, you know, local people, I mean, we, we spend so much time about trying to do whatever it does to take money, but we need to focus on what it does to take care of Jesus' call. Uh, I, I'm kind of thought of a couple stories I had thought about to kind of bring this more in a modern light uh, to make it pretty clear. Uh, there was once a, a guy who was a labor racketeer, uh, and he handled uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, uh, retirement pension funds, right? He had some sweetheart contracts that brought a lot of money into his pocket. Must, a lot of it was kind of undercutting, a lot of illegal. One day he finds out that the FBI is on to him, right? Which usually happens sooner or later. So what does the guy do? He sits there thinking, kind of like this guy did. He's thinking, hey, what do I need to do? So he says, I know what I'm going to do. So he took several million dollars he had, he put them in a Swiss account. Right? And sooner or later, of course, the FBI did catch up with him. He got arrested. After a couple years, he went to court. He was, you know, tried, convicted, and actually sentenced. And he was at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary for several years. And, of course, he was a model, model citizen in that prison. So after about four years, he gets out. So what does he do? He goes to Switzerland, gets his money, goes to South Florida, he retires, and lives happily ever after. Pretty conniving, pretty smart, wasn't he? Pretty creative. Now, it's amazing that some people that are seeking money are so creative. I remember a story about a guy. Everybody heard about a guy by the name of Senator Huey Long from Louisiana? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Huey Long was a perfect example. Um, Huey was trying to get reelected in Louisiana one day, so he goes down to South Louisiana. He's supposed to meet with a bunch of people down there. 
One of the local politicians came up to him just wanted to remind him that, by the way, he's going to be meeting with a bunch of Catholics. So Huey Long goes, starts visiting with people. And as he's talking to them, he tells them this story about, you know, every Sunday at 6 a.m., he gets up, hooks up the horse to the carriage, he picks up his Catholic, you know, mom and dad and takes them to church. And then he turns around, takes them home, and picks up the Baptist fight of his, his wife's family and takes them to church. And boy, they were just impressed at how all those went. And later on, after it's over, that same politician walks up to him and says, well, I just tell you, that was an awesome talk you had. They really just were eating that up. He says, it's amazing. You know, I didn't even know you had a Catholic family. He says, Catholic family, nothing. I didn't even own a horse. <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> but we love it, right? But people do that kind of stuff. They get away with it, chasing after money. You have to ask yourself, how many times are we that creative when we're chasing after serving God? Have you ever noticed some of the cults out there? The Mormon church is a good example. In order to join a Mormon church, you're expected to do two years of mission work right off the bat. I remember when they used to always wear those black suits, a little black tie, you know, bicycles, traveling all over the place. Couldn't get a car, you had to ride, ride a bike. Nowadays, I've noticed they're usually more dressed in modern attire than they used to be. But two years that they have to serve before they could really be considered a part of that church. What would happen if we told everybody here that before you could come, you know, hey, hey Wes, before you can join, you have to go out for two years of, of uh, ministry in the community, and right? How many of us would consider that to be a, a, too much of a challenge? Do we as Christians work as hard in our discipline in following Jesus than some of the other people we know? All right. I remember a story about Mike and Bob. Mike and Bob owned a... Uh, a men's store. It's one of those kind of had all the clothes out front, a warehouse in the back, and every time they worked, Bob would work back in the warehouse, and Mike would work out front. People would walk out and say, I want a suit, and then hang it up, and Mike would look at it, and he'd say, how much is this suit? And Mike would yell back to Bob, hey, Bob, how much is the suit? And Bob would yell, it's $149. Well, Mike would act like he really couldn't hear too good, so he'd say, oh, it's $129. And so, of course, the customer, thinking they're getting off kind of cheap, they'd buy it right away. Come to find out if they went down the street, they could have got it for 99 bucks, right? These guys are being creative but to create more revenue for themselves. How much more creative can we be to bring more people to Christ? Do we practice our prayer life the same intensity as, let's say, for instance, professional athlete? I read a story at one time of a golfer who wanted to be a pro golfer. This guy got up every morning. He went out and he played and he played all day long. So much to the point where some days he would come home in the evening and his hands would be bleeding. How many of us kneel to pray enough to where our knees are bleeding because we're so devoted to Christ? All this golfer is looking for is a better job and ability to make more money. Anyway, do you see the point that I'm trying to make? In this story, Jesus is saying that since the people of the world are so intense in their way, why aren't my followers? If the crooks of the world will stop at nothing to make money, if the professional athlete will practice long and hard to be good, why aren't we who are followers of Jesus as committed to him with the same zeal, the same ambition, the same dedication as they are? 
When Jesus says, for the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with other generations than the son of light, Jesus is saying, why aren't you as committed to me with such shrewdness as the sons of the world are to themselves? Some see this story as dealing with money. I think it really doesn't deal with money specifically or commit a dishonest manager, but it, it, it deals with one's commitment and discipleship toward Jesus. Jesus wants our intense commitment to him. He wants the way we act, the way we think, the way we make our decisions, the way we interact with others, all to be influenced by our commitment to him. Jesus doesn't want us for only one hour a week on a Sunday. I mean, it's great that you're here. It's a good place to start. But he wants us every minute of every day. He wants an intensity in our relationship that comes from anything else, more than anything else in this world, that he wants us to work at our commitment with him. Don't take it for granted or leave it up to him. He wants our active participation in our personal relationship with Jesus. In this kind of relationship with Jesus, we come to experience his love for us. Then we take the love we have and we give it to others. We want to become a tool. We want to become the incarnate presence of Jesus' love in a world that is crying out for someone to care. Jesus wants our incarnate presence in the world to be intense, fully committed to bringing his love into, this broken, into that brokenness. So let me give you a little bit of an example of what it is to be a fully dedicated, devoted follower of Christ. I was reading about this guy who's a, a farmer um, up in Oklahoma. And every day of his life, this man prayed. He offered up prayer with all the names, every single one of his offspring. He had uh, you know, his kids, grandkids, up to three generations. Every day he would pray for those children. He'd offer in prayer all their needs, their joys. He'd talk about their heartaches. The events of the you know, that they celebrated, challenges they may have, but he's always praying for them. He felt that if he prayed for them, if he communicated to God how important their lives were to him, that God would be faithful as he promised and play an active role in their lives. As the grandchildren grew up, got older, they moved on. He continued to pray for them every day. However, some of them kind of got to feel kind of awkward uh, you know, because they didn't have near the faith he had. And uh, when he would tell them about how much he was praying for them, they would kind of like blow it off like it's not that important. Have you ever tried to tell somebody you're praying for them and kind of get that, yeah, okay, thanks, you know, kind of thing. They don't really look at it that way. But anyway, one day this gentleman died. And one of his third-generation offspring finally realized what had happened in his life. Since the day of his birth, this man had been praying for him every single day. In his mind's eye, he would not picture, he could, he could now picture this man with his arms and his hands uplifted in prayer, heavy with the weight of his entire family. As his third generation man walked by the casket in the church, he reached out and touched the grandfather's hands. It's kind of a belated but a heartfelt act of gratitude and thanksgiving for all the prayers that had been lifted up and how God had been there for him due to the prayers of his great-grandfather.
And you know, it's, it's interesting that this story that we read from Jesus is not about money. It's about giving ourselves to Jesus. Too many of us, though, are like the people that, in this one case, kind of attended a small town church up in Iowa. There was a young pastor. I kind of thought of Pastor Aaron when I was reading this. Young pastor that came into this small church in Iowa. And, you know, he, it was kind of a, a tough church initially. He was there for several months. He did everything he could think of. He, uh, you know, he visited with the congregation. He worked really hard on his sermons, did everything he could do, promote a great service in, in a church. But one day he was praying, and he just dawned on him. The church was dying. In fact, it pretty much was dead. So he felt like, hey, if I'm a pastor, it's my job to, to do the funeral. So he decided to, uh, to have a funeral. He opened up an ad in the local newspaper, an obituary. You know, the church is dying. There'll be a funeral next Sunday. And asked everybody they want to come. Of course, kind of in their morbid curiosity, everybody in town decided to go out and see what this was all about. When they got there, they looked out on the, on the yard, and there was this big casket with a bunch of flowers, really things set up. And they all crowded in. And the pastor provided a great eulogy and talked about how this church had just gradually died. And then after it was over, he asked everyone to file by the casket and pay their, their respects. And while they would file by, every one of them would look inside the casket and suddenly look away with sort of a sheepish, sad look in their face. Because the pastor had taken a mirror, put it in that casket, tilted it toward them. So every time they looked at it, they realized that the church was dying because they were the church. And how many of them really needed to be dedicated to save that church? Of course, the funny thing is the next, next week, everybody was in church. <laughs> kind of a little guilt trip, I guess. But whatever happened, it was creative. You know, that, the pastor put a lot of creativity into that and thinking about it. Whatever it took to get everybody to realize how important it was to get back to Christ was what he did. And I look at some of the things that we do here. They're creative. It's the the Monsanto thing, which I think is such an awesome blessing, right? Uh, you know, we also feed kids at the elementary school, right? You look out here, we got a children's ward, a million-dollar children's ward sitting out here. Ward, I call it a ward, it's not a ward. Children's center out here, right? Why do we have those things? Because we want to bring people to Christ. Bottom line, that's what it's for. We want to take our children, we want to really be, you know, care for our children, care for our youth, right? And I think of the contributions people have made to those things. Of course, Ray's a great example with our youth center over here with the Wagerman Center. But those reasons why we did that is because we were being creative in ways to bring people into this church to serve God. Wouldn't it be great if everyone was that creative and that diligent in finding ways to serve our Lord? In this story, Jesus closes the story with a statement that strikes to the heart of the matter, I believe. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And I will tell you, I was kind of convicted of this not too long ago. I know all of us kind of struggle with money now and then, and I was going through, you know, going through a tough time. 
uh, trying to find ends, make ends meet, you know, trying to find time to do things with the church. And sometimes I wouldn't do things with the church because I didn't think I could afford to go do it, those kind of things. And I remember praying one day, I said, Lord God, just, just grant me a windfall of some sort, Lord, so I can pay off my debts so money doesn't you know, decide for me what I ought to be doing. And I was thinking, you know how sometimes you pause and let God talk to you? <laughs> and, and Jesus told me, he says, well, wait a minute, don't we have this backwards? Shouldn't I be doing anything that God asks me to do? And then he will provide what's necessary to do? It's funny how sometimes we think that the only way that money controls you is when you're rich. But a lot of times it controls you when you're poor. Because once again, you're making decisions based on that money. Right? So what exactly is Jesus doing here? Uh, is he uh, proving deceit? No, nah, probably not, right? Um, stealing? No, I don't think so. Dishonesty? No, I don't think that's it either. <laughs> Fine, it kind of reminds me of a prayer. There was a guy that was a pastor. He went to talk to a Rotary Club, to a bunch of valedictorians from high school. And he gets up there, and the first thing he says is, um, he started telling students, he says, the only way to really be successful is to cheat, steal, and lie. Kind of a shocking thing to come from a pastor, don't you think? But then again, he started thinking about it. He says, wait a, wait a minute, let me talk to you about this a bit. He said, odds are you're not going to be as successful in college as you were in high school. Odds are... You'll really not really change the world as you dreamed you are. So he told them to cheat those odds. Succeed anyway, despite the situations. He says college is going to be pretty busy. You'll put lots of demands on you, take a lot of your time. So they're going to have to steal some time to study and not forget to meditate, pray. And most of all, remember to always lie in the grace of God. So, if you really want to lie and cheat and steal, that's where it needs to be done. Maybe this is similar to what Jesus was saying. This story does give us uh, enlightenment about money, though. It does tell us that you can't serve God in money. Uh, you're waiting to serve God until you have money. You'll never have it. Okay? And I heard a professor one time when I was in seminary said, it's only money. Don't make money bigger, a bigger deal than it really is. There's another point of Jesus' message, though. Uh, he praised decisive action. This manager did not hesitate. He took action. Many times when Jesus tells us to go, we freeze up. Why? Because the world tells us, oh, you won't be able to make it, or it might be embarrassing. Okay, when we find ourselves drifting spiritually, we have to take decisive action. Every week we invite people here to make a decision for Christ. Jesus would advise us to respond to his, his invitation. The action now needs to be done. Your life depends on it. If you're not resting with Christ as your Savior, you need to do that today. Be creative in your service to Christ, just as we talked about with the things we're doing here. One on, you know, final interpretation of this story, though, that I, as I was reading, there was a kind of a word that just kept hitting me. This, you know, he may have been a deceitful manager, right? But what was the first thing he did? He started forgiving debts. 
right? And I got to tell you, I think that in order for us to truly give our lives to Christ and follow him the way we need to, the first thing we have to do, we need to learn to forgive. Forgiveness is not always easy. You know, this manager forgives things that he really didn't have a right to forgive, <laughs> right? He forgives for all the wrong reasons, for personal gain, to compensate for the past, whatever it may be. But that's the decisive action that he had to undertake to redeem himself. So what's the moral of the story in this case? The moral is that, like Luke emphasizes, we need to forgive. We need to forgive it all. We need to forgive it now. Forgive it for any reason whatsoever. Forgive people. Whatever we apply this principle to debtor nations or we, we apply it to people individually who have done things against us, we don't have to do it out of love, to be honest. Have you ever, I've seen before where you know, a lady who's, whose son was murdered walk up to the murderer and say, I forgive you. They don't love them yet, but they forgive them because that's the right thing to do. And you can't get to the next step until you get past the problems you need to have for forgiven people. Forgiving is critical, for we forgive and we free sinners like us. It's interesting that as you look in Luke's translation of the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive us our sins, for we forgive and free sinners like ourselves. We must forgive. We have to forgive. Or we could just forgive whatever reason we want to do so. There's no bad reason to forgive. This manager here traffics in what, by definition, is what I would call unrighteous currency. Uh, money. He, he's, he's trafficking for money. We're called to traffic in righteous uh, currency. And that currency, to me, has to do with the kingdom of God. Pointing people to the kingdom of God, beginning with forgiving, and then being creative with what we know. There was a gentleman by the name of John Rooking. He was a, a pastor in England during the World War I era. One day he was sitting and he was watching as the the guy that lights the gas lanterns on the street back in the old days of London. And as he walked down the street, he'd light those lanterns. And it dawned on him, and he said, you know, that's what I mean by being a Christian. You ought to be able to see where a Christian's been by the lights that he leaves behind him. Jesus, in this story, tells us that God wants us to be shrewd to use every bit of our intelligence to serve him and others. He also teaches us to be faithful and trustworthy with God's rich blessings, including our salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus' story reminds us once again that everything we have ultimately belongs to God anyway. May God enable us to be shrewd and trustworthy as we need to be. Is your light burning for Christ? Can others see it clearly? Do you have Christ in your life? If not now, when? Now is the time. We're going to pause here a minute, think about what, we're, what we've uh, talked about. We're going to hear some music.